Yes, may the Lord open our eyes as we open our Bibles to see wonderful things in his word. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21 this morning. And we'll continue in worship as we read the word together. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 15. God's word says, pay careful attention then to how you walk. Not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. This is God's word, and we thank him for it. When you get to know a person well, you, you can often tell who they are a long way off by their distinctive gait. Kate and I still sometimes laugh when we're walking together because when I was a youth pastor, one of the girls in our youth group looked at us and said that when you two walk together, you waddle when you walk. And she, she thought it was cute. I remember when George W. Bush accepted the, the nomination for presidency for re-election in 2004, he gave his acceptance speech and he acknowledged that after four years of him being president, the nation had had plenty of opportunities to get to know his strengths and his weaknesses. And he mentioned that some people were critical of his gait. He said, some folks look at me and see a certain swagger, which in Texas is called walking. Well, that's what these verses in Ephesians have been about over the last Uh, several weeks from chapter 4 on. It's about a distinctively Christian way of walking. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. It shows up again in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. And once more in chapter 5 verse 8 for you were once darkness but now you are light in the Lord walk as children of light. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is summarizing how the walk of a Christian should be distinctive in two ways. First, Christians should stand out in the world by the wisdom of our walk and then by how the Holy Spirit fills us in our life together. And these are our two points this morning. First, walking in wisdom. God's will is that when the world looks at the church, they should see people who stand out for their wisdom. And God wants us to be very careful about cultivating wisdom in our daily lives. Look at verse 15. Pay careful attention 
he says, to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. In other words, think hard about this. Be thoughtful about this. Be deliberate about cultivating wisdom in the choices you make, in the way you speak, and how you use your time. The wisdom of the church is a compelling but often overlooked factor in our witness to the world. It would serve the world well if Christians thought more carefully about acting wisely. Wisdom in the Bible is more than intellectual knowledge. In fact, a person with an average intellect can be exceptionally wise. And a person with a superior intellect can be a fool. Wisdom is not just about what you know. It's about knowing how to apply what you know in all the nitty-gritty circumstances of life. Lionel Windsor said it well. It's like the difference between knowing that a tomato is technically a fruit, that's intellectual knowledge, and knowing not to use a tomato in a fruit salad. That's wisdom. Ephesians has a lot to say about wisdom. In chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, we learn that God has a plan that he is carrying out according to his own vast, multifaceted wisdom. God is a wise planner. He doesn't do things haphazardly or without careful thought. Back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we learn that it is God's intention for us that we would understand his plan. It said he poured out the riches of his grace on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will. But we do not understand what God has made known to us without the Holy Spirit helping us. So in chapter 1, verse 17, the apostle Paul prayed to God that he would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So you can see that this theme of wisdom has been building throughout the letter. So what does it mean in chapter 5, verse 15, for us to walk not as unwise people, but as wise? Or in verse 17, what does it mean to not be foolish, but to understand what the Lord's will is? Now, at this point, I know that, that many of us, when we think of the will of the Lord, we, we think immediately of questions related to our own personal lives, like, should I get married? Uh, should I take this job? Should I buy a certain house? And all of those things are important. But when we read about the will of the Lord in, in the book of Ephesians, we should think first and foremost about the gospel plan that God has revealed. God's plan revealed way back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that everything in the universe is going to be brought together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's God's will. That's God's plan. And if that's God's will and God's plan, if we are wise, we will want to bring all of the details of our lives under subjection to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means when he says, don't be foolish understand what the Lord's will is. The Lord's will is for you to bring your life under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus is risen. He is victorious. He is ruling all things. And one day, everything in the universe is going to have to bow in submission to him. So if you're wise, right now, you should want to make every part of your life be ordered under the lordship of Jesus. Now, right now, we notice in verse 16... God's plan to bring everything under the lordship of Christ 
hasn't yet reached its goal. Because what does Paul say in verse 16? He says, the days are evil. We're still living in a world that by and large is resisting the rule of King Jesus. We live in a world that's in rebellion against God's king. We saw back in chapter 2 that all of us were once part of this rebellion. We were walking according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. That was all of us. But God, in his great mercy and because of the love that he had for us, he made us alive while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, and he raised us up with Christ. He rescued us while we were revolting against him. And now he's calling us here in chapter 5 to be very careful after having been rescued from this rebellious world to not be swept back into the current of a world that's rebelling against God. We were warned in chapter 5, verse 6, last week, not to be deceived. Why? Because God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. So here we are, Christians, at this point in history, we have the opportunity to live in this world for the reign of King Jesus while the world is still against his reign, while his reign is under assault by the powers of evil. One day we're going to live in a new creation where everything is brought under the lordship of Jesus, and that's going to be wonderful forever. But right now, we have this unique opportunity to live in a world that is still fighting against the reign of King Jesus and to show through the wisdom of our walk what, what light looks like in a world that is dark and to call people out of light into darkness. And if we're wise, Paul tells us in verse 16 that we're going to be deliberate about taking all the moments and all the days and all the time that God has given us and use it for the glory of King Jesus. That's what it means to redeem the time. It it means to buy back what has been squandered. And as the Apostle Peter put it, we've already wasted enough time doing what the Gentiles do. We've already wasted enough time in rebellion against King Jesus. Now it's time for us to make the most of the opportunity we have in this present evil age to show the world what it looks like to live under the reign of King Jesus. To do that, we need wisdom. So how might your life need to change to walk more in wisdom and less in foolishness. What are some steps you might need to take to obey these exhortations? As I was reading this week, I came across some questions that made me stop and think. Here was one of them. Do you deliberately put prayer first before checking your social media feed, before replying to your email, or anything else, do you put spending time in the presence of King Jesus and getting direction from his word as the top priority in your day? That's wisdom. That's God's will, that we bring all of our life under the lordship of Jesus. So it's wisdom to make that priority. Here's another question. Do you regularly review your life before God? And consider, how am I using my time, my talents, my treasure 
to glorify the King of Kings? Am I putting sin to death in my life? How am I doing that? Am I growing in righteousness and in holiness? Here's another question. Am I prioritizing what really matters? Not just the urgent things. Do I say no to good things in order to say yes to the best things? Here's another one. Am I making sure I get enough rest so that I can live a life of what Christopher Ash calls sustainable sacrifice? Pouring myself out in service to God and to others in a way that's sustainable for decades, not just bursts of energy and then burning out. See, these are questions about living wisely. And it's important that we think about wisdom in every aspect of our lives. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. God wants our walk to be marked by wisdom, the wisdom of living under the lordship of Jesus. And as I was thinking about this, I just wonder, as people in America look at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today, are they impressed by our wisdom? Our people saying those are a people who are renowned for wisdom. We can't do this on our own. We need help to live this way. We live in a world that wants to sweep us back into the tide of foolishness. And so that's why we need to hear the next exhortation very clearly. Ephesians 5.18. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. This is the second distinctive way Christians are to walk in the world. To walk wisely, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's our second point this morning, walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, has anyone ever asked you, are you a spirit-filled Christian? Or you, do you go to a spirit-filled church? Maybe a question like that makes you feel a little bit awkward. What are, what are they driving at? We can feel a little bit suspicious when we hear someone talking about being filled with the Spirit. But in this text, Paul is literally commanding Christians to go on continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, with the third person of the Trinity, by the third person of the Trinity, to have God himself filling us. This is God's will for all Christians, not just for a few. It's God's will for us all of the time, not just in special circumstances. And it's God's will for the whole church. Every Christian and every Christian church can and should be a spirit-filled church. Now, when we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, God is not asking us to acquire something that we don't already have. We have the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us if we are believers in Jesus. And as a church, the Spirit of God indwells us. 
So Paul here is not talking about getting something that we don't have. He's talking about living in close communion with the one who dwells in us. He's talking about living in reliance upon the spirit who lives in us. Maybe a few analogies can help us grasp what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I like to think of a sailboat with its sail. you got to put the sail up in the air and, and it, it requires the wind to come fill it and to move it along and to, point, and to send it in its direction. And that's what being filled with the Holy Spirit of God is like. It, it's being moved by God the Holy Spirit to walk in the path of God's commandments. It's the full, fullness of the Spirit that enables us to put sin to death and to live according to the righteousness that Jesus desires. Trying to live for Jesus without being filled with the Spirit is like being a sailboat stuck out in the doldrums in the middle of the ocean where there's no wind. You can't, you can't get anywhere that way. So being filled with the Holy Spirit is gladly submitting our lives to his direction, saying, Spirit of God, I need you to breathe on me, to fill me with your power, your energy, so that I can live the life Jesus is calling me to live. Here's another analogy. Think about a pitcher of cold water clean water. And what happens when you pour a packet of crystal light into the pitcher? What happens is the whole color and taste of the, the jar changes. And, and likewise, it's God's desire for the Holy Spirit to permeate the entirety of our lives so that the very hue of our lives becomes the loveliness of Christ. And the fragrance of our lives becomes the aroma of Christ. And the character of our lives becomes the, the holiness of Christ. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to have him permeating every aspect of our being so that our lives increasingly reflect the character of Jesus. But the best analogy is the one right here in our text. Notice in verse 18, Paul makes a contrast between being drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. So what is this about? It's about influence. It's about what controls you, what dominates you. Now, the Bible does not condemn the use of alcohol. In fact, there are times when the Bible commends the use of alcohol. Wine is a gift from God to gladden the hearts of men. And Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, doing what? Turning water into wine. So God is not against the responsible use of alcohol, but God clearly condemns the abuse of alcohol. Because what happens when you drink too much wine is you become intoxicated. And you yield the control of your life to alcohol instead of yielding the control of your life to God's spirit. And then you act in ways that are foolish, sinful, and destructive. Drunkenness is the epitome of darkness. It's not walking in the light. But it is a temptation to which we're vulnerable, especially in this present evil age. Paul said, the days are evil. And what, what do you want to do when the days are evil? You want to numb yourself. From the evil, you want to experience some exhilaration. You, you want to experience something that's going to make you feel better. And so sometimes Christians who are not being careful and wise in their use of alcohol end up turning to a substance instead of Christ 
to be filled, to be satisfied. And Paul is warning us not to do that. He's echoing a warning from the book of Proverbs here that's really graphic. We're going to put it on the screen. Proverbs says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has conflicts? Who has complaints? Who has wounds for no reason? Who has red eyes? Those who linger over wine. Those who go looking for mixed wine. Don't gaze at wine because it is red, because it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and you will say absurd things. You'll be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down on the top of a ship's mast. They struck me, but I feel no pain. They beat me, but I don't know it. When will I wake up? I'll go look for another drink. That's a picture of the reckless living of a drunkard. But when the Holy Spirit fills you, you are under the influence and control of one who is going to make your life completely the opposite of what drunkenness does. Instead of losing control, the Holy Spirit fills you. And what's the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. Instead of squandering the time when the Holy Spirit fills you, he leads you to make the most of every opportunity we saw in verse 16. Instead of wrecking relationships, which the abuse of alcohol often does, the fullness of the Spirit leads to flourishing relationships, which we're going to see in the verses that follow in in the home and marriage between parents and their children and in the workplace. So here's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means you're submitting to his direction, to his leading in your life. He's the wind filling the sails of your life. It means you're being permeated by his gracious character, and it means you're living under his influence and under his control. That's what we're being commanded to do. And I want you to notice that as Paul gives this command, he doesn't give us any list of techniques or strategies on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason he doesn't give us strategies is because it's not a technique. This is not something we can master or we can do. It's something we need God to do for us. But at the same time, we've got to be careful not to look at this and say, well, there's, there's nothing I can really do here, and so I'm basically just going to forget about what I heard and do nothing because God wants us to be convinced that this is his will. It is his will for us to be filled with his spirit. And the way we know this is true is because Paul speaks of it in the imperative mood. It is a command. Be filled with the spirit. Not a suggestion. Not optional. Believers were not at liberty to just kind of ignore this. This is a command to believers. This is what God wants to do for us. You don't have to convince God to fill you with his spirit. He's not reluctant to do it. Jesus died on the cross. He accomplished your redemption so that your sins could be forgiven, so that your life could be cleansed, so that his Holy Spirit could come to dwell in you and fill you the way the Spirit filled the temple in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself said in Luke eleven thirteen, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we need to be convinced this is God's will for us. This is something God wants to do in us. 
And it's not something that he just wants to do in us as individuals. This is something he wants to do in us as a church, as a community, because this verb to be filled is plural. It's, it's not just speaking of individuals. It's speaking of the whole body. And that's what we've been seeing throughout Ephesians. It's about the body of Christ. We are the, the temple in whom the Spirit dwells. So if a church is going to be filled with the Spirit, the individuals in it need to be filled with the Spirit as well. Is there anything practical we can do to be filled with the Spirit? I think there is. What do you do to get drunk with wine? What does a person do who gets drunk with wine? They drink a lot of wine. So what do you do to get filled with the Holy Spirit? You drink. You drink the Spirit. Listen to this verse from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Paul says, We were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And listen to this phrase. And we were all given one Spirit to drink. We were all given one spirit to drink. So how do you drink the spirit? I think you drink the spirit by drinking in the word that he has inspired. How do you do that? How, can I prove that from the Bible? Well, I think I can. We're here in Ephesians 5. There's a parallel passage to Ephesians 5 in Colossians chapter 3. These two passages are very, very similar but in Colossians chapter 3, Paul does not open by saying, be filled with the Spirit. Instead, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And what we're learning from that is that the word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ are inseparable. That's in Colossians 3.16. We can be filled with the Spirit by drinking in the word. And I think there's a difference between merely reading the Word of God and drinking the Word of God. What would the difference be between reading the Word and drinking the Word? The difference, I think, is thirst. When we come to the Word of God thirsty, saying, God, I need to hear from you. I need to have your Word change my life. I need you to illuminate me and open my eyes to see wonderful things. I believe your Word is my life. And so I'm going to drink in your Spirit as I read your Word. And I'm asking you to fill me. And as God's people read the Word and drink the Word, the Spirit of God is filling us with his presence. Okay, so we've seen that this is God's will, it's an imperative command. It's a plural command, so it's God's will for all of us together. It's something we need God to do in us. We can't fill ourselves with the Spirit. God has to do that. And it's in the present continuous tense. This is to be the ongoing experience of the Christian church. Not just a one-time, okay, I have the Holy Spirit, but an ongoing communion with and reliance on the Holy Spirit. It's what God wants for our lives. Now, what difference will it make if we are a church that is in close communion with the Spirit and relying on him, a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit? What difference will it make? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a lot of guidance on that. He shows us what difference it's going to make in verses 19 through 21. He gives us the marks of a Spirit-filled church here 
And the way you can see the marks is by paying attention to the ing verbs. These are called participles. And you see five of them. Verse 19, speaking, singing, making music. And then verse 20, giving thanks. And verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. These are the marks of a spirit-filled church. When we are filled with the spirit, it will be evident in the way we speak to one another. Verse 19 says, we will speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, when we gather for worship, it's not just a bunch of individuals seeking a personal encounter with God. That's not what this is all about. We come with the purpose of edifying one another. And we do that through our speaking and singing together. The content of our speaking and singing matters tremendously. Paul doesn't leave this vague in verse 19. He gives us the content. He starts with psalms. There is a clear reference here to the Old Testament book of psalms. We see it also in Colossians chapter 3. The psalms in the Bible are God's word given to God's anointed king and to God's people so that we can pray those words back to him. There's no other book in the Bible like that. God's word given to us to pray back to him. But that's what the book of Psalms are. The Psalms are the best book of common prayer in the world. The Psalms are the best hymn book ever given to the people of God. And in fact, all three of these designations that Paul uses here, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, they're all designations that are used in the Bible to describe the book of Psalms. So I don't think that this means that in the church we need to limit our singing only to the book of Psalms. But I do think it serves as a great corrective to the modern church. What we do for worship today often ignores this treasure that God has given us. And we neglect the psalms of scripture in our worship to our own detriment. I'm so grateful to see a movement of musicians today who are taking up the psalms and putting them into contemporary renderings for the church to speak and sing to one another. So when we come to worship, we need to not just look for songs that touch us individually, but we need to sing in such a way that we can edify the people around us. And this involves speaking and singing Holy Spirit-inspired words to one another. That's a mark of a Spirit-filled church. Another mark is that when we are filled with the Spirit, our singing is going to come from the heart and be directed to the Lord. So it's Horizontal, edifying to one another, and vertical unto the Lord. It's both. When God saves a person, what do we see in verse 19? He puts a melody in their heart, a new song in their mouths. And if you visit a mosque, you're not going to hear a lot of singing, a lot of rejoicing, a lot of melodies coming from the heart. This is something unique to the Christian religion. Christianity is a singing religion. Because the Spirit of God fills us with gospel-shaped affections that cannot be kept silent. We must burst forth into singing. If we don't praise him, the rocks are going to cry out. We've got to sing to the Lord because of what he's done for us. And it comes from our hearts. 
So when the church gathers to worship, we're not coming to see performers on a stage. I am grateful for this stage that's been recently rebuilt. It's, it's nice. But the purpose of those of us who are up here is to serve and equip the whole body because we, the body, are the choir of the redeemed. We've the, we're the ones who've been rescued from all over the earth, from the revolt and rebellion of the world, to belong to Christ. And when that happens, we sing. So that, that's a mark of the Holy Spirit. We're saved by grace, singing from our hearts to the Lord in the presence of one another for our mutual edification and encouragement and for the glory of the Lord. Another mark is that when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we will be filled with uncommon gratitude. And what's uncommon about it? It's in verse 20. We give thanks. How often? Always. For what? For everything. That's uncommon. What's common is to complain a lot. What's uncommon is to give thanks always for everything. Now, we find reasons in every circumstance to give thanks to our God and Father. We don't thank him for the evil things that he hates, but we do thank him that even when we're experiencing the evils of this fallen world, he is at work in those things to overcome all evil through Christ. And that's why we give him thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, because we know that it's in Christ that all evil will be overcome and that all things will work together for our good. And so we are a people filled by the Spirit, filled with uncommon gratitude. And lastly, when we're filled with the Spirit, it's going to show up in the way we relate to one another. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, it says in verse 21. It means in a spirit-filled church, no one's thinking, oh, I'm superior to this group of people here. I'm, I'm better than others. No one's trying to prove his own point or her, advance her own agenda. Everyone is learning by the Spirit to prefer others more than themselves. We're happy to learn from one another in a spirit-filled church. We're happy to be led by one another so that everyone can exercise their gifts and their strengths in different ways in a spirit-filled church. All of us are called to submit to one another at different times and in different ways. I was thinking about years ago when I was teaching ninth grade Bible at Westminster Christian School, working part-time there and working full-time here, and during that time, when I was at school, doing my job there, it was my duty to submit to the high school principal. And it was a joy to do so because she was a great principal. But it just so happened that the high school principal was also a member of our church. So there were times and circumstances in which it was her duty to submit to me as one of the pastors in this church. And I think that's just one of the many ways in which we submit to one another. It, it takes humility. And Paul says the motivation is the fear of Christ. It's out of reverence for him. Him who is going to come, he who is going to come to judge the living and the dead. So notice there's nothing weird here. 
in these marks of being filled with the Spirit. A Spirit-filled church is going to be speaking the Word of God in ways to encourage and edify one another. It's going to be singing and making music in our hearts to the Lord. It's going to be a church that's filled with uncommon thanksgiving. It's going to be a church where everyone's learning to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Those are the marks of a Spirit-filled church. Paul doesn't say anything about barking like dogs here. He doesn't say anything about falling down or any kind of outlandish marks. No. He says when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, our lives are going to be beautiful. They're going to be lives that are centered on building up and edifying others. More and more selfless, more focused on the edification of others. And that is going to look like wisdom to a world that's watching. No, no human being can create a community like this. We can't fake this. This is something that only God, the Holy Spirit, can do in our midst. So it should cause us to want to lift the sails of our hearts as a church and as individuals and say, Holy Spirit, fill us. Take control of our lives more and more. Permeate our lives with the gracious character of Christ. Let's bow before the Lord now and ask him to be doing that in our midst.